G'day everyone, this is Greg Ryan and welcome to episode 50 of the Rare and Resilient 1 in 5000 podcast. And today we are doing a very special podcast. We have medical professionals from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio and from Ohio State University Medical Center. And we are going to discuss the very important topic of pelvic floor physical therapy. So I'd just like to welcome Ali Geisha, Sarah Drysback, Erin Gates and Laura Ward. We just have a brief introduction. Ali? Hi, I'm Ali Geisher. I'm one of the pediatric and adult colorectal surgeons. I work at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. I also work at the Ohio State Wexner Medical Center in the adult uh, colorectal surgery department. And you might recognize Ali's voice because Ali's been a guest on our podcast previously. Sarah? Hi, my name is Sarah Dressback. I'm a nurse practitioner and um, I work at the Colorectal Center at Nationwide Children's Hospital as well. I have been there for just under six years, and my primary focus is bowel management for children with anorectal malformations, Hirschsprung's disease, functional constipation, and some other like neurogenic bowel type disorders, but this is a very fulfilling job, and thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. Erin? Hi, everyone. I'm Erin Gates. I'm an inpatient pediatric physical therapist at Nationwide Children's Hospital, as well as our evidence-based practice coordinator. I'm also currently serving as the vice chair for our APTA pediatric hospital-based SEG. And I have worked at Nationwide for about 11 years now, and I feel really passionate about helping our patients with pelvic floor dysfunction while they're inpatient. Thanks, Erin. And Laura? Hello, everyone. My name is Laura Ward. I'm a pelvic floor physical therapist in the outpatient setting, and I work primarily with adults, but I'm a board-certified women's health specialist, which is the specialty that we have in America for pelvic floor physical therapy at the time, and I've been treating pelvic floor for about 11 years, and I see a variety of diagnoses from pregnancy, postpartum, urinary incontinence, bowel dysfunction, gender affirmation care. Thanks. So what we're going to do today is we're going to have just a brief overview on pelvic floor physical therapy, but then we're going to address some questions that I've asked on our information group Facebook page. And we've got a lot of questions from parents and some adults as well. So we're going to address those. But first, over recent times, the pelvic floor physical therapy has become more accessible and encouraged in the IA ARM community. What has initiated this change in how the medical community have viewed the benefits PFPT for IAARM patients in both children and adults? Ali and Sarah, if you'd like to weigh in on this. Yeah, I think at least from, from my perspective, I did my pediatric colorectal fellowship at Nationwide, and then I went on to Ohio State to do my adult colorectal fellowship. And really... Prior to that, I didn't really know much about pelvic floor physical therapy. It wasn't really any part of our training in pediatric colorectal surgery. And then when I went on to adult colorectal surgery, it was definitely part of our training. And it was a large part of how we helped our patients. And especially our pelvic floor patients, it was a, such a large part of their treatment plan. So when I came back to Nationwide as an attending, it seemed very much like a gap of something that we weren't addressing. The pelvic floor was essentially a black box that we just weren't thinking about at all. We weren't thinking about awake anorectal manometry. In a lot of ways we were ignoring, I thought a very vital part of our patient's treatment plan. 
So we started initially looking, and I brought this up to our division meetings and our GI motility meetings, and we started looking more at the pelvic floor. We started engaging some of our adult pelvic floor physical therapists because we really, at Nationwide, didn't have, unfortunately at that time, any pediatric pelvic floor physical therapy. So through the help of OSU at Ohio State, we engaged their adult pelvic floor physical therapies and started sending our patients. And we really saw a lot of improvements. And it became such a large part of our practice that we were able to have people like Aaron come on board and then start a pediatric pelvic floor practice at Nationwide. And Sarah, you would have seen this develop since you've been at Nationwide. How, how have you seen the change in the attitude? Yeah, I I started um, in February of 2018, so not long before I think Allie came back as an attending, like just around the same time. But we really didn't have the, it wasn't part of my initial training. You know, this is not something that we learn about in school when we're in nursing school or in the advanced program to become a nurse practitioner. And so the kind of initiation of being interested in it was when Ali started talking about it. And then we were lucky enough to have Laura from OSU and um, some of her partners do some education for us as the nursing group. Um, And then we also had someone named Karina Syracusa, who's a pediatric um, pelvic PT who does a lot of education throughout the states. And from there, it just became obvious that based on this population, these children have had a lot of surgeries. They have had a lot of medical issues. Some of them have not used the bathroom in what we would call quote unquote normal ways. They haven't stooled from their bottom for a long time. So they have to relearn how to do all that. And we are really good at medically managing them, but we don't have the skill set or the knowledge to help holistically with some of these um, intricate pelvic floor muscle issues. And so Over time, we have finally been able to get some great relationships established to help these patients. Oh, that's great. Okay, um, so we'll first start off with the first lot of questions. Um, Erin, you're going to look after these because it's more related to the the child. So at what age range can the PFPT be in? We usually suggest around three years old, but really ideally when the child can follow directions to be able to complete those exercises or any mobility recommendations that we're having and around the time that they would be achieving continence um, if they were working on toilet training at home. Okay. And how to have a good start with these little ones? This is really a great question. And although uh, we said pelvic floor PT typically starts around the age of three, it actually really begins with a great foundation of their developmental skills, like crawling and upright sitting and standing. We know through research and over time, the importance of the diaphragm working in conjunction with the pelvic floor, as well as our trunk muscles. So initially when a child is born, their diaphragm is in an oblique position. And as they encounter more upright skills, like the crawling and the standing, the rib angle changes and the diaphragm orients more to a mature position to be able to move optimally with our pelvic floor. So as the pelvic floor is really our center of gravity, we need this for stability. And children with delay in developmental skills often really need to seek postural stability elsewhere when they can't use these muscles properly. So they'll compensate with other muscles or they will hold their breath. 
And this really is cyclic and can lead to a lot of pelvic floor dysfunction and withholding patterns in our patients. And this is where it starts. So how do we get a good start with these little ones? Really emphasizing the importance of developmental skills and really good developmental therapy. Okay. And how is a pelvic floor evaluated and how do the therapists determine what areas have potential for improvement in children? Yeah, so in pediatric pelvic floor PT, it definitely looks a little different than adults. We really focus on evaluating factors like muscle strengthening, breathing mechanics, interoception, like that body's awareness, scar management. We know we've had a lot of surgeries, range of motion, and how this all can really impact that pelvic floor contraction or relaxation or impact their proper toileting posture. If we note an impairment or functional challenge, challenges with any of these areas, we can address them through treatment strategies, and all of which have the potential for improvement. And those treatments in kids look a lot like fun, a lot like play, all of those uh, interactions that we would typically do in developmental therapies. And we do know this all takes time. So we might see some improvements quickly, but overall strength, endurance, and coordination may take some time to develop, especially for our pediatric patients. So those home programs and carryover with those concepts at home are crucial to success for our little ones. Right. Now, I had a parent who was interested in understanding how pelvic floor strength (laughs) and sensation, et cetera, is tested. For example, is it invasive or non-invasive, and is it are they child-friendly exercises? Yeah, so to assess the pelvic floor itself, we can use tools like biofeedback to assess that motor recruitment of the pelvic floor, or we can do a visual assessment of contraction or relaxation if it's indicated. And we realize our kiddos have really been through a lot medically. And so we don't want pelvic floor PT to be something that they fear or they're not excited to come to. So in understanding this, we do no internal assessment at Nationwide Children's Hospital and no internal treatment is completed. We have many child-friendly exercises and strategies. Most of us come from developmental backgrounds, which is extremely helpful in creating those pelvic floor concepts and making them into fun treatment strategies. So I'm thinking about like the basics of respiratory mechanics, telling a child like you would an adult to take a deep breath or exhale with movement is nearly impossible to coordinate. But when we provide toys like a pinwheel or bring bubbles or have a kazoo available, this can make breathing during our exercise so much fun. Okay. And now, are there any methods to encourage and explain to a two-year-old that it's better to open up their bowels or rather not to push out? Yeah, so I'm thinking this is more like with a bowel movement and trying to coordinate a bowel movement. So two is a challenging age at a two-year-old to begin with to, to try to work on that. But some basic tips and tricks is to really just get the child into the best toileting posture they can be. So with their knees slightly higher than their hips, their feet supported. And at two, you probably really need what's called a ring reducer in the toilet. So that way they're not having to work their core so much and they can really relax on the toilet. And then we want to encourage just some fun breathing. So like as we discussed before, the breathing with the fun bubbles or kazoo, And this in turn should really help with that pelvic floor relaxation. And hopefully we get less of that pushing effect that we were talking about. A pelvic floor PT consult could also be a good idea as well to follow up if there's any coordination issues when they are ready for that. Okay. Oh, and Sarah, just from a nurse practitioner's point of view, with the push out part of it, how do you see that? 
I will honestly usually implement a lot of the strategies that I have learned from the public QTs, to be honest. We don't yeah. have a lot that's different. And like Aaron said, a two-year-old can be challenging because they their communication can be a little bit um, different. And their body awareness is something that's still developing. And so having them blow bubbles, having them play the kazoo, um, blow on a pinwheel, all of that stuff really helps. And we also encourage the parents about proper positioning so that they are in the optimal position to relax their pelvic floor. And usually that's not an issue as much because two-year-olds are often using like a small potty training chair, which sort of puts them in a good position with their knees at the right angle. We just encourage them to keep their knees hip width apart. And I will say that sometimes, you know, little YouTube videos or something that's quick that they, that keeps their attention that can sort of guide them through breathing properly can help keep their attention and learn how to do those things. But it's a work in progress at two, for sure. Now that back to you, Erin. How is biofeedback used to, to support PFPT and what successes have they had with it? Yeah, biofeedback is a very useful tool for our pediatric patients. So for those of you that don't know, biofeedback is surface EMG with stickers that we place on the pelvic floor muscles. The stickers record the activity of the muscles. So like when they're relaxed or contracted. And the child sees this through a visual interface of a video game. So when they contract on the gaming feature, they see like a butterfly, for instance, and it goes higher on the screen. And then when they relax, it goes lower. So in using this tool, we can cue for things like slow contractions, quick contractions, smooth transitions through contract, relax. Um, and then we can look for endurance of the, the muscle. You know, is it fatiguing quickly? Are they able to stay contracted for longer as needed? And then just that overall pelvic floor relaxation, which is so important. We found that kids really love the video game aspect of the biofeedback and have noted a lot of really great success in over time with patients and even in just a few visits. They really start to pick up on this quickly and really become more aware of what their pelvic floor is, especially because that's so hard to describe for kiddos. But it's really important to note that pelvic floor PT should not be biofeedback alone. Also want to look into all the other strategies that go into pelvic floor PT and make it so successful, like that posture, breathing, strengthening, um, range of motion, all of that is so important to work together. Oh, that's great. Now, this one uh, comes from someone who lives outside of America, having got access to the, the centres. How can people who live without access of these supports attempt some of the exercises themselves? Yeah, even in, in the States, that's a common question we hear as well, especially in our rural areas. A great thing to focus on at home is really just making sure like we emphasize that toilet posture is appropriate. That's the big one. In regards to exercise, it's all it's hard to prescribe because everybody's body is so different and what they truly need. But like we talked about earlier, if we have no pediatric pelvic floor PT available in your area, you know, do you have a developmental physiotherapist that's available? Someone that does work with pediatrics. We know the importance of those fundamental developmental skills 
and those strengthening components that go into it. So if we find someone and really explain to them, be open about what you're looking for, what you're interested in, in regards to those goals that you're trying to achieve, and then encourage your therapist to reach out to your CCPR team, um, because they probably are aware of pelvic floor PT and the importance, and we can communicate together in that way, because it really takes a good team effort and collaboration to make our kiddos the most successful for their bowel and bladder management. Okay. Now, it's regarding e-stim pelvic floor therapy for increased sensation and strength in their glutes. Do you utilize this tool? I'll take that question. E-stim or electrical stimulation is something we can use more like in the adult side. And we can use it in a couple of varying options. One is for like neuromuscular reeducation. Do we put a direct, um, so electrical stimulation for those who don't know is actually taking electrical current and putting it into tissue. So we can do it to help with pain modulation. We can do it for sensation if someone has an hyperactivity to desensitize um, depending on the settings, but we can also use it for strengthening. I don't necessarily put it on their glutes. We do a lot of glute training to kind of help with some down training for pelvic floor PT, but we can use it. And this is a little bit more invasive because we can do internal sensors. So we can put it um, like an internal sensor rectally or vaginally, depending on the patient, depending on the body and what their needs are to help with that recruitment of pelvic floor muscles, or, or if they have a hypersensitivity with having a lot of stool burden in their stool and like being constantly aware, we can kind of help retrain those muscles so they're not constantly feeling like they have to have a bowel movement or retraining to help them learn when they should have a bowel movement. Okay, thanks, Laura. And this is something that I can relate to as well. How can IARM patients bypass the medical trauma when participating in PFPT that we all have to deal with as we get older from the memories when we're young? I don't know if I have a good answer for that, but I know with me working more with adults, they are, a lot of our pelvic floor patients do have a, a little bit more trauma-induced care from either medically or from situational positions. And a lot of it is just making sure your provider has like some trauma-informed care, as in asking for consent for everything they do, letting them know what we need to do. Um, since we work in such a sensitive, exposed area, my practice and my team's practice is to let them know what we want to do why we want to do it. And then that patient has a right to say yes or no at any time. So if I want to do biofeedback therapy with the SEMG or surface electrodes, I'm going to tell them I want to do it. I'm going to tell them how I want them placed so I can put the electrodes on and then we're going to get covered to your comfort level. And if they don't want to do it, because I've had a few patients who don't like the butt stickers. And so we can look at different forms of training for them as that patient. Right. Okay. PFPT is something you have to maintain, as in like do the exercises for life? I love that question. Yes and no. So technically with pelvic floor retraining or pelvic floor training for specifically for having bowel movements, it's retraining to have a proper bowel movements. Are you putting your, we talked a lot about that toilet posture, um, is to help support your um, anal rectal continence angle to allow for that bowel to come out a little bit easier. It helps that puborectalis muscle or that big pelvic floor muscle relax so you can get bowel out. And with breath mechanics, um, are they doing what they should? Because some people will actually hold their breath and strain, which actually can cause your pelvic floor muscles to tighten to kind of help support you can call it a co-activation and research or a valsalva maneuver, but it's like pushing through a closed pipe. 
So it's retraining those muscles to have that proper mechanics so that pelvic floor can relax and those sphincters can open. So that part, it should just be relearning and kind of changing a habit, but you can also incorporate pelvic floor exercises and everyday exercises. Are you lifting properly? Are you breathing out when you're straining? Are you exhaling before you do like a certain activity? So it's kind of like with everyday activities, can we train you to get your pelvic floor to activate a little bit better, but also to relax as well? Okay. So it's a yes and no question. Perfect. That's that's fine. Now, the next question, um, it was from a parent um, of a, a young child, but it more relates to adults, apparently. It's called, can it help with diastasis recti? My kiddo has a pretty, pretty significant diastasis recti at two and a half. At what age do I get more concerned? And what doctor would help with that? Just curious if something others treat concerning its connection to the pelvic floor. So diastasis rectus abdominis, or DRA, as it's known in like the pelvic floor PT world, is a separation between your abdominal muscles. So our abdominal muscles, specifically the tissue between our rectus abdominis muscles are like six-pack ab muscles. There's tissue that lines there that can get separated from pregnancy in my world mostly, but also from multiple abdominal surgeries. It's a weak spot. And our we have different abdominal muscles that do work with our pelvic floor. So we have a pelvic floor, so we have a ceiling, which is our diaphragm. So then we have our abdominal walls and our back muscles that kind of all work together for our core. And if something gets messed up with abdominal surgery or any other um, dysfunction or habits, um, our bodies are really good at cheating. It can cause a little bit of that separation. Most of us are born with a DRA as we develop and get our core strength. So the first step, I would bring it up to their pediatrician to see when they should start being worried about it. Our world, anything more than two centimeters or two finger breaths along that rectus abdominis muscle would be a um, cause for concern, which pelvic floor PT does help with that because of its relationship with the pelvic floor. It's working on soft tissue, uh, muscle activation to kind of break up to help those tissues come together and retraining those abdominal muscles to activate to give you better support. Yeah, Ali, just just a question in relation to this condition, diastasis recti. How common is it in ARM patients? I think similar to what Laura said, it, it's more common when they've had multiple abdominal operations. Most of the time, from a surgical standpoint, we don't necessarily address the diastasis recti surgically. We do try and improve the functionality of the issues with pelvic floor physical therapy if we can, or abdominal uh, core re-strengthening therapy as well. Most of the time these don't cause, it's not the same thing as an abdominal hernia where bowel can get stuck or obstructed. It's a very different phenomenon, but it is a weakness of the muscle. It's very rare that we surgically uh, respond to this. No worries. Laura, a next question. Is having a toilet seat with a footrest the same as having a potty when thinking about pelvic muscles? And I, I think this was relating to like what's known as like the squatty potty. Squatty potty is like a brand name of like a stool that kind of sits around your toilet that you put out and put your feet up. The squatty potty is made to have different heights. So it depends on the height of your toilet. But ideally, you want your knees a little bit above um, your hips to kind of get you in a supported squat position to allow for your pelvic floor to be relaxed. And it kind of helps with that anorectal like angle of your like sigmoid colon going into your rectum to kind of help open up everything to allow you to like empty your bowels a little bit better. I've had patients who 
can't afford a squatty potty, don't want it. They think it's a trip hazard. So they'll use like tissue box boxes to kind of put their feet up. And we've measured their toilet. We've measured the tissue box to make sure it's a good positioning. But as long as they have that good toilet posture and are able to kind of breathe while they have it, it should count. Okay. How is the pelvic floor evaluated? How do therapists determine what areas have potential for improvement? So for adults, as long as they kind of check all the boxes, one is always consent. Two is if they've had a care set up with an OBGYN for a vaginal assessment or with a care team with a colorectal team for a rectal assessment. So we are trained to do a little bit more invasive assessment, which would be like an internal assessment. So our therapists wear gloves. We use lubrication to kind of help with any type of discomfort. And we can kind of look at these muscles layer by layer. Our pelvic floor muscles are made up of three layers from like superficial to deep. So we can kind of go in a little bit just to kind of assess what each muscle is doing. Rectally, we usually go deep to superficial to kind of surpass the anal wink reflex. And we can kind of palpate around and kind of feel what those muscles are doing. So it helps us identify certain muscles, but also helps us identify what your strength is. So we look at the muscles and what we call a perf. Uh, so power, endurance, repetition, and fast twitch, because we have different types of muscle fibers in our body and our pelvic floor muscles are a good blend of them. So we have like the fast twitch and slow twitch muscles, or if you think about like, we just had the holidays here in, in the States, so like light and dark meat. So we have those muscles and our pelvic floor muscles are a good blend of those. So we look at how strong are these muscles? How long can you hold that? So we grade it on like a zero to five scale. Great. You have a four out of five. How long can you hold that? How many times can you hold that strength? And then what's your coordination? And more importantly, can you relax after you tighten? Are you able to bulge and bear down? And then we can also go a little bit more superficial to test that external anal sphincter for those same things, that power, endurance, repetition, fast switch. So it's a little bit more invasive. I personally like to have my patients on their side because I can still talk to them and hear them a little bit better, but we can do it standing. We can do it on their back. We can also do it on their belly. All therapists in the kind of patient preference and always, always, always with consent. Now, is pelvic floor therapy still useful even years after having the last surgery? This is sort of like an adult question, of course. Yes, because it can go back to if they're still having like a musculoskeletal impairment or dysfunction. That's what PTs do. We identify those impairments to see what they're ha we're helping with. So if they're still having issues with emptying their bowels or having a complete bowel movement, or if they're still having pain in abdominal scars, we can still look at that and be helpful. Because again, it goes back to that muscle retraining. They're relearning those muscles. So why are those muscles not emptying all the way? They could be weak somewhere else. So we're going to look at global muscles, core, glutes, to kind of help strengthen. We're going to go back to the potty posture and then we're going to kind of help with any type of techniques they can use. I feel it's never too late. Okay, great. Would it also improve bloating and digestive issues? It can. That is a multifactorial issue usually. So usually we got to start with getting like their stool consistency a little bit better. Are they having sensitivity to foods? As we age, our bowels can change a little bit. So some foods that didn't used to bother us can now bother us. Are they getting adequate hydration? We check all those boxes, but a lot of it can be some of that core strength as well. If they don't have a lot of core strength from having a lot of abdominal surgeries or just straining a lot to have bowel movements, that can contribute to that bloating, especially at the end of the day. So we can work on some like muscle strengthening to help with that. And what can it be done daily to help with scar tissue? So it depends. 
our tissues are usually existing, kind of laying down a little bit nicely. Scar tissue is a big jumbled mess to kind of help heal a certain area, even if it's a skilled incision or a laparoscopic incision. And some people make more scar tissue than others. So doing just a gentle massage to kind of get that tissue to move can help decrease that appearance of scar tissue, but also get tissue to moving. One test I use to kind of see how bad their scar tissue is, is I kind of push on it. And if it, you can see a dent or you can see an exact line where that tissue is, that's an indication that they have more scar tissue that might be impeding movement or muscle activation. Uh, if you push on a scar and it moves nicely and it blends with the skin, they probably don't need it. But that daily, just kind of gently rubbing either like transversely up and down, you can kind of do like crisscross stretch patterns, or even just rubbing lotion on it on a daily basis can kind of help get movement in that scar tissue. The thoughts on massages for scar tissue, especially for around the abdominal muscles. Yes, very. it's very effective. It should be gentle. We do a lot of scar tissue mobilization in the adult world from people who've had multiple abdominal surgeries, C-sections, ostomy bags, and it's just getting that tissue moving so we can get those muscles activating as they should. Our muscles have a length tension relationship they like to be in, so there's an optimal length for those muscles, and that scar tissue can sometimes impede that lengthening. So we want to get that tissue moving a little bit and then follow it up with proper coordination of activation of those muscles. Right. Sarah, what are some of the expected outcomes of PFPT you've seen? Well, for for the kiddos, one of the big things that I would love for them to focus on first is just establishing a trusting relationship with the PT, getting them comfortable with going and working on being able to put words to the sensations that they're feeling in their body. And so it's a stepwise sort of progressive, you know, scenario where at the first follow-up after I've sent them to PT, I don't have the expectation that they are fixed, not continent, you know, not incontinent, not constipated, but they can start putting words to what they're feeling in their body. And then as they get more comfortable and more mature um, and have better body awareness, you know, the goals will start to be more you know, a combination of behavioral uh, changes where we want them to, okay, now you know what it feels like when you have to use the bathroom. Now we need to stop playing Legos and run to the restroom and we implement sort of, you know, reward charts and things like that with parents to help them increase the adherence to those behavioral things. And then over time, we, you know, we do monitor success via outcomes in terms of their symptoms of constipation and incontinence. So it can really just depend on their age and developmentally where they are and how long they've been doing the therapy. Follow up from that, have you seen significant improvements for kids that have started doing PFPT? I have. I have some patients who it's so effective and it it literally makes a difference between whether or not they stay clean that day as I have some patients who they have a they have like a regimen of stretches because their issues are that they have um, hypertonic or too strong muscles muscles that don't want to relax you know if they do their stretches before their bowel regimen they're clean and if they don't they aren't because they don't empty as well because those muscles aren't relaxed and stretched enough to let things out so I've absolutely seen success with um, with both scenarios where we have some significant weakness or significant um, tightness. The muscles that they are working um, can certainly make improvements. Oh, that's great. Ali, can it help improve bladder capacity and enema programs? Absolutely. I think the benefit of pelvic floor physical therapy is that it's for the whole pelvic floor, 
not just the bowel compartment. The rectum is considered the posterior compartment of the pelvic floor. The bladder is considered the anterior compartment. And so we do see benefit from pelvic floor physical therapy in all aspects of the pelvic floor when they're completing it. Certainly sometimes the pelvic floor physical therapists may focus on certain symptoms and focus on that area first. But we we absolutely luckily see benefit with bladder frequency, urgency, strengthening the bladder muscles as well for patients who have not just bowel issues, but may have bladder issues as well. And absolutely with our enema patients, even though they're relying mostly on the enemas to empty their bowels, we do see benefit. And I don't know if Erin wants to speak to that because she does see them as inpatients. Yes. Helping our, our pediatric friends who, whether they get a psychostomy or a Malone placement, or even uh, are doing just rectal enemas, really helping them throughout that process. So we kind of prime the pelvic floor with those pre-stretches, um, really getting that pelvic floor relaxed while that solution is getting mixed, get them in really good positions to receive that solution, and then help them with their sit time. Like we talked about earlier, the potty posture, the breathing mechanics, anything they can do to tolerate the, the solution. So whether if they're going to have some mild cramping or things along that nature, how can they work through that um, and maintain that good pelvic floor posture? Because a lot of that leads to withholding. They see a lot of compensation happening. Those kids want to pull those thighs together. Those kids want to try to get off the toilet and run away. Um, so how do we get them to sit, stay calm, work through all of that, um, and maintain those pelvic floor concepts that we talked about earlier? Uh, so at Nationwide, we are lucky enough to have an inpatient therapy team that supports pelvic floor as well as our outpatient. So while inpatient, we work through um, those situations with families. We'd like to participate in their first Malone flush if the family is agreeable and consents to that, which 99% of the time they do and are very excited about this because their lives have revolved around pooping and they just are ready for some success. And so we stay with them through that process initially in that first little bit of sit time and teach them the tips and tricks we know to make them successful. And then afterward, we can see like those post x-rays or um, their outputs and see how successful they have been. And it was really great. We get a lot of really wonderful feedback from families that it starts them off on the right track as they're developing this process with their enemas. And just to follow up for that, is there any difference between if you do it by rectally or through them alone? Is there any different strategies you use depending what sort of enema they're using? Yeah, so rectally, they definitely need to be, we've seen a good success when they're on their side, and then they can kind of hold that solution in for about 10 minutes before they make it to the toilet. A lot of kids have a really hard time doing that 10 minutes alone is a hard time for a child to stay in any position, um, let alone in that position while they're receiving uh, an enema. Um, so working through some strategies there for good posture. And then the Malone flush, just making sure that they are capable of sitting on the toilet during that time. A lot of these kiddos have a challenging time. I mean, they don't have a ton of surface area on that abdomen. So can they open up to attach the flush to that site? Can they maintain that good position afterward, especially immediately postoperatively, it can be a little challenging for patients to assume this. Uh, so we work through all of those things together based upon their needs. Right. So Ali, what would you like to add to what we've discussed? I think just thinking about the patient who's had medical trauma, 
in the past and is very really reluctant to see a pelvic floor physical therapist, I think it's really important to address that in terms of making sure their understanding of the benefits of pelvic floor physical therapy, but first and foremost, making sure that whatever is driving the anxiety or what is driving the medical trauma is addressed first and foremost, that they're feeling comfortable with other aspects of their psychosocial, behavioral, and uh, therapy management to make sure they're in a good place and have worked through as much as they can with a therapist. I find that that helps a lot, quite a bit. So that when they do go to the pelvic floor physical therapist, they're really able to go with an open mind and an open heart. But I think it's also important that they address those issues and those feelings with their pelvic floor physical therapist so that they can alter their strategies and alter their treatment options and only do what they feel comfortable with. And they may be able to do still a lot of things that get a lot of benefit for them without going near their kind of zone of discomfort. Yeah. And Laura, I'd imagine that would be fairly common that you deal with with your adult patients. Yes. Uh, to the, yes. To the point where we actually have screening questions to kind of make it an open dialogue with patients so they can feel comfortable. And if they don't feel comfortable right away, they know that it is an open-ended question. And again, going back to that um, trauma-informed care, like having consent with everything and knowing you can speak up, like, I really don't want you to touch my belly today. Okay. This is what we're going to change gear. And we're going to do something different to kind of go back to that relearning. Because the ultimate goal for physical therapy is to give you guys the tools to use at home. I know a lot about the abdomen and pelvic floor muscles, but I'm not with you on a daily basis. So I want to teach you what I know for your body so you can continue to kind of have benefit in that quality of life area. I know we've discussed the uh, issue of getting access to uh, a physical pelvic floor therapist. Sarah, what's your view on this? Um, I find that it depends on it, a lot of it, unfortunately, at least in the States, depends on just geographically where the patient is located in larger cities. I tend to have more success with finding someone who is pediatric pelvic PT trained. It can be difficult enough to find someone who has pelvic PT experience at all. And then to further dive in and look for someone who's trained in peds, it can be even more challenging. But I will say that this profession um, seems to be extremely willing to help patients. And so even if I can't find someone who's pediatric pelvic PT trained, I find that this population of providers is extremely willing to learn and collaborate with um, other professionals. And so it's not hopeless if there's not someone who advertises themselves as pelvic PT in their area. There are plenty of professionals throughout the world who are willing to help their colleagues learn how to do this. And so it may just take a little more digging to try to find the right person, but certainly we do everything we can to make that happen. That's great. And I'm sure that Having this podcast now will prompt a lot of families all over the world in our community just to investigate it as well. I really appreciate everybody's contribution. It's, I've learned a lot myself personally. So thanks, everybody, for being part of it. And it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank, Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye